Dead Ahead. Written and narrated by Jason Wallstrom. Chapter 4 When Henry woke, he had to take a moment to remember where he was and the events that had led him to this bed. As he lay there with his arms hugging himself, pressing the family frame picture against his chest, the thought had occurred to him that he may be the only person left alive on earth. But he quickly shook the thought out of his head. He set the picture back on the bedside dresser. The light popped on as he reached near it once again. He squinted his eyes at the light and turned to look at the room. He fought the urge to turn on the television. Why would there be anything on? Why would there be new information? Everyone was dead, weren't they? How many hours had he been asleep? He slid his smartphone out of his pocket and glanced at the time. It was 3.05 p.m., He estimated that he had been asleep nearly three and a half hours. He laid his phone on the bed and unzipped his backpack and retrieved his touchscreen laptop. He crisscrossed his legs on the bed with his open laptop in front of him. What the hell? He thought as he looked around and he found the remote control on the left bedside dresser. Might as well have a distraction. He saw that it was one of those fancy touchscreen jobs, just like the one on his father's desk. He clicked the television on and didn't want to go through the process of seeing nothing but snow on every channel, so he turned it right to channel 39. Too Close for Comfort starring Ted Knight was on. Henry was pleased. He remembered watching this quite a bit as a child and always had a crush on the blonde daughter. It was the episode where Selma, the old lady from Night Court, showed up to take the daughter's character's furniture. It was one of those rare episodes with no Monroe. That Jim J. Bullock was always driving Ted Knight's character Henry Rush crazy, but not in this 22-minute storyline. Henry grew up watching Channel 39, before there were way too many cable channels to watch. He always had the reliable local Mulberry channel to fall back on. He could remember the days when he would stay home from school sick. His mother would turn the TV to 39 and put a blanket on him, and he'd lay in front of it all day long, watching all the old sitcoms and TV shows of the 70s and then the 80s, and now they even showed some of the great 90s shows like The X-Files and Dawson's Creek late Friday nights. He dialed it to a mild volume, and then his attention turned to his laptop. The main news feeds were up to date with the headlines of doom like The Death Tide is Coming and Stay in Your Homes. Lock your doors. Army deployed. Henry rubbed his eyes and kept scrolling. It was all the same, but there was nothing about the cause. Why did this happen? What caused this? Why couldn't it be stopped? The army should have stopped it, shouldn't it? America was a well-armed country. Why didn't we fight back? Henry knew that Mulberry wasn't exactly a high crime rate city as far as he knew. In fact, he didn't really know anyone with a gun, although he did assume they were around. Yes, they of the hub ended up pretty much screwed at work, just waiting to be slaughtered. But was anyone out there prepared? Did anyone stand up to the tide? Some doomsday prepper, perhaps? 
He couldn't possibly be the only fortunate person out there, could he? His stomach groaned with hunger, but he chose to ignore it right now. He must find a piece of information, a piece of hope. Otherwise, why bother with eating? What was he to do? Live in this tower for the rest of his life? He had to know that someone would show up someday soon and take him to safety. But it was selfish of him to wish for these things, wasn't it? He'd only survived the day's early onslaught. Who knows what tomorrow would bring? He should cherish every moment that he still had the ability to breathe. Food. Shut up, he thought. I don't even know how much food is in here. My God, I'll starve to death, won't I? He gripped his forehead with his right hand. He sat there motionless, overwhelmed with too many thoughts. He'd seen too many people die on this day. He hadn't even begun to process it. He just needed a distraction. He glanced at the television screen. Ted Knight was arguing with his two beautiful daughters. He didn't think he should have to furnish their apartment. It wasn't his problem. What a cheapskate. They're probably dead too. All of them. Every show, every movie, every actor. They're all dead. Shut up, Henry. Stop thinking these thoughts. I'm alone. Forever. Henry turned the volume up louder. He needed to tune out the voice in his head. He needed to tune out the dread. The laugh track did its job. He sighed and kept searching headlines and clicking different news sources. He read the words, Swift blow to the head, and Kill the brain, repeatedly. Of course. Kill the brain. There was someone out there that had figured out how to put them down. But why hadn't it helped turn the tide? No pun intended. He would probably never know. There was that commercial again, Founder's Day. It was so strange the way that the station kept on going, playing the same commercials over and over. Now another commercial for the Nourish Plan diet. You could lose up to 10 pounds a week on the Nourish Plan. They would send you a month's worth of boxed meals at a time, and you would get all the nutrients and minerals your body needed without all the extra calories. The commercial showed many plates of different delicious-looking dinners, like pasta with meatballs, pizza, hamburgers, different bowls of hearty soups, and don't forget the desserts, chocolate-covered donuts, cookies and pretzels. Henry caught himself staring at the food. He was really hungry. He rolled off the bed and stood up and stretched. He would continue to tune everything out. He was going to play Home Alone just like Kevin in the film. He was all alone and he had to fend for himself, and the first order of business was to find something to eat. 2. Henry checked the kitchen cupboards and then the pantry. There were several boxes of dry cereal. His dad loved grape nuts and Wheaties. Too bad there weren't any lucky charms or tricks. Henry thought. There were about 30 or so packs of ramen noodles, beef and oriental flavor. That was a score. Henry loved that stuff. Four boxes of some more flavored Pop-Tarts. That was another score, but enough with the breakfast food. Was there anything else? Two cans of chili. That would go quick. Four cans of tuna. 
Jesus, was my dad really eating this shit? He counted several cylindrical cans in the cabinet before him. Wow, 18 cans of Pringles? He pushed those aside. Two jars of unopened peanut butter. Two jars of grape jelly. Two loaves of bread. They would be expired by next Monday. Hot cocoa packets. Instant coffee. Two jars of Tony spaghetti sauce. Four boxes of chocolate chip granola bars. He could live off this for a while. He turned to the refrigerator and opened it. It had a fancy LED lighting system inside. Each shelf had its own mood lighting. Henry groaned at the sight of four half-gallon cartons of almond milk. His dad loved that stuff, but Henry preferred good old-fashioned mood juice. But it would have to do. Besides, almond milk lasted way longer than regular milk. He could stretch this stuff out for a while without fear of it going sour. Did almond milk even go sour? Hell if he knew. Score. There were about 12 Diet Zolt Colas, but Henry would probably drink that in two days. He needed to stretch it out. Maybe drink one a day or just screw it and drink them all and get it out of the way. No sense in fooling himself. This was all the food he had, and when it was gone, he was probably going to starve to death. He put that back out of his mind and kept looking. Baby carrots, red grapes, sliced cheese and one packet of turkey lunch meat, one pack of Oscar Mayer wieners. He opened the freezer and had to focus a moment on what he was looking at, and then he laughed. He knew his dad loved Arby's roast beef sandwiches, but this was insane. His dad had actually done this before when his mom had first left. Clifford would go to Arby's and order 30 or so roast beef sandwiches at a time, and then put them in Ziploc bags and freeze them for the month. He would remove one a day and microwave it and munch down on some Pringles, which were his favorite chips. It was enough to make him happy, but now it would have to keep Henry happy. Happy and alive. Henry estimated there were 35 Ziploc roast beef sandwiches. If he ate one a day, he would at least last over a month without starving. Hell, with every bit of food that was there in the apartment, he would be okay for quite some time. He smiled at the thought of a meal. Henry removed two frozen sandwiches and put them in the microwave. He thought for a second and remembered that his dad always nuked them for one minute and twelve seconds exactly. He punched in the time and hit start. The microwave came to life with a soft hum. He fetched a can of Pringles and then got a can of Diet Zolt out of the fridge. Eleven left after this. He set a plate there at the bar adjoining the kitchen. He quickly retrieved the living room remote and turned it to channel 39. Too Close for Comfort was still on. He stood waiting for the sandwiches to finish when he remembered the crowning touch. Arby sauce. He opened several drawers until he found it. His dad was a well-known condiment hoarder. In the drawer were hundreds of Arby sauce packets mixed with fancy ketchup and soy sauce. He pulled out three and he heard the ding as the microwave was done heating up his meal. After fetching his Genetitech touchscreen tablet from his backpack, he sat down to eat. It was business as usual for Henry, always distracting himself with either his tablet or phone or laptop while eating every meal. He was never away from a screen of some kind, it seemed, even now at the end of civilization as he knew it. 
Henry thought for a moment, but what about when the power goes out? But then shrugged that thought away immediately. This was Mulberry, the place where the power never went out. In fact, Henry was lucky to have grown up in such a technologically advanced town. He never suffered so much as a brownout or rain fade in his lifetime. And here it was, possibly the end of the world, and not so much as a power fluctuation. This was Mulberry, the creation of the Mad Doctor, as some had called him. The Mad Doctor Bubenstein. What was his first name? Henry pondered. He remembered writing a lengthy term paper on the history of Mulberry. It wasn't like other school projects that he had done against his will. It was quite fascinating. The many opinions on the founder of Mulberry that he had read were that he was as mad as a hatter and the richest man in the world. Dr. Heinrich Bubenstein. That's right. Henry's dad had named Henry after the doctor. Clifford was a huge admirer of Heinrich and never believed the ridiculous rumors that surrounded him during his life. Henry had somehow pushed that out of his mind. When Heinrich was but a baby, he was kidnapped. His parents were very successful industrialists that were involved in the energy business, energy and power of different kinds, not just oil. They were pioneers in wind power and water power and early solar power. Heinrich's father was a true genius of invention, and it was his intention to fuel the world with rich and clean sources of energy even way back when, before people began to get negative on fossil fuels and such poisoning the earth. Henry remembered a picture he saw once of Heinrich's father, Zephyrin Bubenstein in front of a giant blimp, or Zeppelin as his father Clifford had corrected him. But Zephyrin called it an airship, and that airship was named the Strontium Yacht. Henry remembered laughing at that, wondering, what in the world kind of name is that? But Clifford had told him many times of seeing it over the skyline of Mulberry when he was a child even long after Zephyrm was dead. It was still flown every year during the Founder's Day parade around the city. At night, it would light up like a bullet-shaped Christmas tree. Clifford would sit at his bedroom window, following it with his eyes in the night sky until he couldn't fight the urge to sleep any longer, and when he would wake up the next day, it was gone at least for another year. Henry had never actually seen the airship fly. It was long gone and stored away before he was old enough to see and remember. Henry remembered the kids' stories about how it was stolen by Nazis and how it was actually the government that had stolen it. But Clifford always assured him that it was locked away somewhere. Dr. Heinrich Bubenstein would never let anything happen to his father's prized possession. There were even rumors that Dr. Bubenstein had buried his father in the Strontium yacht deep under Mulberry where one day it would set sail again. Many of these rumors fascinated both Clifford and then later Henry. Clifford promised Henry that one day he knew for a fact that both he and Henry would see the strontium fly again. He was so sure of it. But that would never happen now. Clifford told Henry that he had never actually been aboard the strontium, but he had seen pictures and even had an old magazine that they had passed out to kiddies for free during the parade. It had a blueprint and color pictures of the strontium. Young Clifford's imagination went wild seeing names like lounge, cabin, and bridge deck. That thing was huge. He often wondered how that thing flew. 
It had living quarters, a giant kitchen with a dining room, and an incredible observation deck. He had read about very important dignitaries partying on the ship, incredibly posh dinners and even award ceremonies taking place right there on the Strontium yacht. It really was an unbelievable life that was led by Zephram and his wife Marie. Yes, that was it, Marie. Henry took another bite of his roast beef. It was quite good. His dad was on to something with these sandwiches. Or Sammy's, as his dad had always referred to them. Hey, sport, want me to make you a Sammy? He would ask Henry, and he would reply with a resounding, You betcha! He then wickied the Bubensteins. It was this incredible story of adventure, until poor young Heinrich was kidnapped in the mid-forties. Mulberry was not yet even built. It wasn't even on the drawing board. In fact, Mulberry might not even exist if poor young Heinrich had never been kidnapped. It was Chicago late December. The Bubenstein family had been seen on the town for the Christmas tree lighting. There was a big to-do when the Strontium yacht had arrived. Thousands of people came out to see it fly over their city. When Heinrich disappeared, the town went nuts searching for him. Zephram and Marie were inconsolable. Everyone thought that perhaps he had been found by someone, and they were hopefully caring for him. He was such an adorable baby. In fact, that was why Henry now remembered he was named Henry after Heinrich. It was a saying, in fact. Many people said, Cuter than the Bubenstein baby. It was said even to this day when a child was born. No one referred to that horrible kidnapping because it ended up having a happy ending. Well... Not exactly happy, but the Bubenstein baby survived and he was always adorable, and he was the pride and joy of the Bubensteins. The Bubensteins were soon sent their first ransom note. The kidnappers wanted two million dollars, which was insane in that day and age. They might as well have asked for two trillion dollars, because it wasn't going to happen. Zephram was very rich, but his money was all tied up in his energy business. He couldn't come up with that kind of cash overnight, but he needed to. He had to save his son. Zephram turned to the FBI for help, and later that night it was time for the money drop-off. The FBI botched it bad. A chase ensued around the city of Chicago. There was a shooting, and soon the kidnappers with the baby Bubenstein inside had plunged into Lake Michigan. Henry noticed that the website he was looking at had links to the kidnappers' names and then the route that they took in the chase in the Chicago streets. There was even a link to take a tour of the famed kidnappers' escape route when visiting the city. It was a historical event that people talked about for years to come. When the car plunged into the lake, it was said that baby Heinrich was underwater for over five minutes, that he would have most certainly suffered horrible brain damage. The country mourned over the fate of this child. It was quite tragic, actually. Henry remembered his dad telling him that even though the kidnappers were dead and the baby was safe in the hospital, the baby was in a coma. There was this feeling of dread surrounding the entire country for this poor child. The press wouldn't leave the Bubensteins alone. There was no respect given to let them mourn. Henry fixated on a picture of Zephram huddled with Marie, his arm over her shoulder. She had a handkerchief in front of her face, trying to shield it from cameras. The strontium yacht sat in a hangar for months without being touched. Several leaked photos appeared in the press, 
competitors tried repeatedly to sneak into the hangar to get a good look at the technology that had built the famed ship. The chief of police, out of respect to the family, swore that the next trespasser would be shot on sight. Clifford loved to tell Henry these stories when Henry was young and couldn't sleep. He would beg him to tell him one more about the strontium. Clifford told him that the kidnappers were just small-time hoods that had done nothing like this before. Many people called them merely dumb opportunists that got in over their heads. But Clifford believed what some others called the sabotage theory. You see, Zephyr and his Bubenstein labs could not be stopped. His wind and water and solar power ideas were so advanced that it would cripple the oil industry. The big oil men were terrified that they would soon be obsolete with his so-called clean power. They had to do something to throw Bubenstein off his game. It was a crazy theory, and it was all speculation, but the kidnapping did indeed stop Bubenstein Labs cold. Production grinded to a halt, and when months turned into a year, a tragedy happened. It wasn't baby Heinrich, but Marie Bubenstein that had taken a turn for the worse. She barely left the hospital when Heinrich was in a coma. The family had made sure to get the best doctors and specialists that they could from around the country, but it was Marie that had grown weak. With the constant worry and lack of sleep, Marie came down with walking pneumonia and died soon after. Zephram was destroyed. The man was broken. There were several photos of the Marie Bubenstein funeral. Henry saw Zephram's face his face frozen in a sad frown. This man and his incredible wife, once on top of their game, the two most fascinating people in the world, had been toppled in no time flat. Their demise had also saddened the world. Henry unconsciously contorted his face exactly the way Zephram's face appeared in the photo. Tears formed in his eyes and he wiped them away. He took a moment to glance at the television that was showing a Chia Pet commercial. Henry turned his attention back to his tablet. He used his forefinger to scroll downward to the Heinrich Bubenstein history of events. It wasn't long after Marie's death that Zephram had taken his own life. He was simply devastated over the loss of his wife. Some people had said that Marie was the strong one in dealing with her son's coma. It was Marie that kept Zephram hopeful. With Marie now gone, Zephram had no one. He mixed sleeping pills with alcohol and was found the next morning. The nation was in shock. It was exactly one week later when the Bubenstein baby woke and the world woke with him. It was the win that everyone needed. Headlines everywhere pronounced, Bubenstein baby lives. There was dancing in the streets. Soon the 80-year-old mother of Zephram took Heinrich home as soon as he was well enough. She lived in Sweden, and that's where Heinrich lived most of his childhood in privacy and solitude. He was the mystery child that people for years tried to get a look at, but no one knew for sure where he lived. It wasn't until the late 50s when Heinrich had received a national award for his breakthrough in air conditioning that he returned to the spotlight. Henry didn't really know much about this, but he did know that he was thankful for Heinrich because it got really hot in Texas during the summer. Without air conditioning, the state, let alone the world, would have been miserable. Henry scanned through Heinrich's list of achievements. There were so many. He scrolled forever down the page. Solar-powered cars, planes, 
portable solar generators, something called the Portal AC, whatever the hell that was. Henry finally arrived at the Mulberry City section. It was said in an interview after he received his award that when Heinrich was a baby, he dreamt happily. In the interview, Heinrich told people in print that he was cognitive during much of his coma and that he existed in a town that took care of him. It's where he came up with most of his ideas when he woke. He had to adjust to being a baby again. He had said that he had aged to adulthood in his coma. In this other world, he had achieved wild success. Many people were saddened to hear this. It was obvious that the poor kid had suffered from brain damage from the lack of oxygen to his brain. It wasn't long after this, at the age of 14, Heinrich refused further interviews. There was the curious fact, though, that Heinrich was quite gifted. He was a child prodigy in many subjects, including energy generation. He excelled in aerodynamics and quantum mechanics. Here was this child that had twice the intellect of his father at half the age. Heinrich became obsessed in his teens in creating his dream city. Henry clicked a YouTube link that featured a 60-minute story back in the early 70s. The story was all about how Heinrich was going to build the city that he had visited in his coma, the one that he had lived in when he was unconscious. Heinrich now believed that the place he had visited was the future, not just his own future, but his destiny. He was going to create a city of the future from scratch. Many people again speculated that this was a lad insane. Henry looked at the film of Heinrich. He was standing outside an airfield. He could see that Heinrich now had the Strontium yacht fresh out of its hangar. It looked newer, like it had been modified. Heinrich had claimed that the spot of this futuristic city was somewhere on Earth, and that the only way that he could find it would be to travel there and see with his own eyes. For one year, Heinrich had traveled in style aboard his father's airship. The country went crazy going on strontium sightseeing tours looking for it in the sky. When it was spotted, those regular citizens made the local papers, celebrities for a day. At the age of 27, Heinrich Bubenstein had to make an emergency landing over the state of Texas. The strontium yacht had to set down in the middle of a mulberry tree field in an unpopulated area. It was there that Heinrich had stepped out to make repairs on one of the strontium's motors that he turned and faced east. The wind in his face, and soon a tear fell from his eye. He had arrived. It was the exact spot that he had been in his coma, his dream world, his dream city. He had arrived. He recognized it from the mulberry trees in the land. All he had to do was close his eyes and the city sprung forth from his imagination. The skyscrapers, the wind generators sticking from their sides, just like he had seen so long ago. He was home. It took Heinrich a mere week to buy the plot of land. Whenever some piece of red tape popped up, he simply threw money at it. Being the son of a Bubenstein had its advantages and had made him a rich man, not to mention the fact that his inventions were now making him a pretty coin. He could pretty much purchase whatever he wanted. Every state in the country and different parts of the world had tried to entice Heinrich into visiting. They wanted to be the place that had the city of the future. 
But Heinrich had stated that in his other life, everyone there spoke American, was how he put it, and in effect putting off the rest of the world in disappointment. 2. Henry stood up to stretch and heard his back pop. This was strange. It had been mere hours since the end of the world, and here he was reading Wikipedia and watching too close for... Oh, it was family ties now. Henry turned the sound up on the remote. It was an episode where Tom Hanks plays Alex P. Keaton's Uncle Ned. It turns out the poor guy is an alcoholic. Henry hadn't seen this episode in years. He watched it for a bit and then turned his attention back to his tablet. Dr. Heinrich Bubenstein's first steps in building Mulberry started with, of all things, a grand opera house. Heinrich had stated that he had recurring dreams that had taken place there. There was meaning to it. He never said what that meaning was, but it was the first thing he had built. The Grand Majestic was a sight to behold. It was Victorian Gothic. And many people said from the air, it looked like a giant eye staring up into the heavens. And from the sides, it looked awesome and imposing with its dark gray stones and beautiful windows. From the Grand Majestic, Main Street was built. It was a straight line from the steps of the Opera House pointing south. On Main Street, a series of buildings had been built. These were less imposing than the Grand. They looked like your standard brick storefronts of the day. Many fountains could be found in and around Mulberry on almost every street that sprang forth from Maine. Many people were puzzled at the system that was in place in the creation of Mulberry. Why start with an opera house? How about a place to provide power? Heinrich soon shut all of them up, of course. Every block was fitted with a series of tiny windmills on roofs of the structures. Soon more sprang up on the lamp poles up and down the street. There was also an ingenious invention that Dr. Bubenstein had recently perfected. The solar brick. Actual bricks that buildings were constructed out of that absorbed energy from the sun. Soon the entire town was creating its very own power. Once the power was achieved, there was no stopping the acceleration of building. It felt like overnight. More and more builders were hired to work construction. It was a great paying gig, too. Henry now remembered the statue in the Heights District Park. It was a statue of a construction worker. He was holding a lunchbox in one hand and a giant wrench in the other. The man had a big grin on his face with the posture of a superhero, with an air of confidence. The statue was dedicated to the builders of Mulberry. When Henry was a little kid, he wanted to know what was in that lunchbox. He imagined a stone sandwich and an apple, maybe a thermos. Clifford had tried to tell him that it probably wasn't that detailed, but Henry's imagination had gotten the better of him. Clifford reconsidered. Anything was possible in Mulberry. Henry had actually been to the Grand Majestic several times throughout his life. As a small child, he attended a performance of Peter Cottontail and had been to the Nutcracker several times with his mother. Most recently, the Grand had become the venue for many types of musical acts, from rock bands to the latest pop teen idols. As Henry read about the history of the buildings in town, he started to reflect on the times he had driven by such places. Many of the museums and bridges were things that he had always been around. He had never really appreciated them. Many people around the world flocked to Mulberry. 
It became quite the tourist attraction, and many people came to town as a place to stake their claim and start fresh. Heinrich welcomed everyone at first, but by then he had selected a group of people, the quorum they had been called. They oversaw such things as residency and business licenses, while Heinrich could continue to build. Hospitals, schools, and a huge shopping center that had been dubbed the Synergy Palace were all built the same year. But you would never know by looking at them. They had all looked unique in their own way. The elementary school was named after Heinrich's father, Zephram Bubenstein Elementary, and the hospital was named after his mother, Marie. Heinrich had begun to name places after people he deemed loyal to him, people that had served proudly. That was when Heinrich had upset the residents of North Texas when he filled enough pockets to rename the Red River to the Willoughby River. It was named after his loyal servant, the man that had served his parents. His name was Reginald Willoughby. He had overseen Heinrich's newly built estate that was hidden away in the man-made hills west of Mulberry. There at the top of said hill, Heinrich could stand on his balcony and view the city of his dreams. Reginald was there at his beck and call providing any service needed, including protecting the young ward. Several mysterious accidents had begun sprouting up on several work sites. Heinrich believed that these accidents were the work of his father's and now his enemies. The oil industry was the most likely culprit. Harlan Oil was leading the world in refinement, and Bubenstein had become direct competition. The solar brick and the countless wind generators and water treatment innovations. Heinrich Bubenstein was bad for their business, and Mulberry would serve as an example of what clean power could mean for the rest of the world. When people started dying on construction sites, Heinrich decided to take action. He hired a police force, and their main purpose was to oversee the continued construction of Mulberry. Heinrich had dubbed them his Mulberry Rangers. Many of them were retired Texas Rangers. After all, they were very well respected in the community. They brought law and order, and soon the construction continued. He saw a link that was highlighted in blue with a line under it. It read, The History of the Mulberry Rangers. There was a small square picture icon of a gruff-looking man that reminded Henry of a grizzled Clint Eastwood. 3. Henry paused and rubbed his eyes just in time to see Tom Hanks smack Michael J. Fox's character, Alex P. Keaton, on the ground. It was the moment when Uncle Ned knew for a fact that he was indeed an alcoholic. Henry laughed and said out loud, Ladies and gentlemen, a very special family ties. He knew there was no one there to laugh, and he suddenly felt very alone and cold and afraid. He was doing it again, psyching himself out. He needed to stop that. Maybe it was time for him to end this history lesson, as fascinating as it was for him, and maybe try to relax. He had so many movies saved on his computer hard drive, hundreds in fact, with 12 terabytes of space that allowed for plenty of music, movies, TV shows, and games. He spent 30 minutes scrolling through his library of shows, but in all honesty, all he wanted was a distraction, and Channel 39's offerings were enough for now. Henry left his plate and brought his drink with him, tucking his tablet under his arm. He opened the pantry and grabbed a Pop-Tart and headed back to the bedroom. He set his things down on the bedside dresser 
and went back to the door to make sure that it was locked. But then he stopped himself and walked back out and quickly went down the stairway to his dad's office level. There was only one entrance that he could see, and that was the elevator door. He knew it was shut down. It was locked tight. Right? Proto had told him that he was safe. He would just have to believe her. Her. Yeah, right. Well, Proto did have a female voice, albeit a somewhat annoying one. He quickly ran back up the steps, each step lighting as he hopped, ascending to the apartment. He decided to leave the plasma in the living room on. In fact, at home, he never turned the televisions off. Ever. His dad had spent years yelling at him about wasting electricity. But Clifford never understood that Henry wanted the distraction. He needed the company, too. His dad was never at home, and the TV kept him safe and distracted. It was like this unspoken protection spell. If the TV was on, then nothing could happen to him. He slid shut the bedroom door and flipped a little slider switch to the locked position. He kicked off his shoes and then crawled under the soft sheets of the bed. He wasn't ready to take his clothes off yet. Would he ever feel comfortable enough to do that? Would he ever feel safe enough to take a shower? To let his guard down? Enough to sleep? To take a number two? He didn't know. He didn't have those answers right now. All he knew was that he wanted a continuous distraction, so he didn't have to deal with these dark thoughts. He fluffed his pillows up, taking an extra pillow that was next to him, tucking it behind his head. He took a sip of his diet Zolt and rested his tablet on his legs. The television distracted him once again. It was time for a new show, but Henry had no idea what. He tapped the guide button on the remote tablet that was sitting to his left, just right next to his resting hand. The guide was blank for every channel, which didn't surprise him, but it was disappointing. He would have to wait and see the next show. It's not like he could change the channel if it was something he didn't want to watch. He would have to get used to whatever was being offered by KNIM, Channel 39. Familiar music began to play. Show me that smile again. Don't waste another minute on your crying. We're nowhere near the end. The best is ready to begin. He stared ahead at the screen. It was Growing Pains, a sitcom that he had watched with his mother. He immediately flashed to a moment in their living room. He was laying on his stomach, his hands resting under his jaw, his feet in the air. He could almost smell the beast stroganoff that his mother prepared on a weekly rotation. He was there in the moment, for real. He felt like he had time-traveled for just a split second. It was like he was there, but then lost the sensation the instant he realized that it was right there in front of him. It was like trying to get eggshell out of a bowl of freshly cracked eggs. He had often felt these moments of nostalgia. That's what his father had told him what it was. Well, if it was nostalgia, then nostalgia sucked because it always instantly made him sad. If only he could time travel back to that safer time. He would warn everyone. He could warn his mother. He could plead with her to never leave him. Who was he kidding? He would be locked up, and his mom would most certainly abandon him again. A whack job for a son. What a shame it would be. Oh my God, he said out loud to no one. 
he had just realized that this was the episode where Matthew Perry from Friends played Carol Seaver's boyfriend. He drinks and drives and eventually dies. It was hard-hitting stuff back in the day, and Henry was sure he didn't want to deal with any more death, so he instantly muted the television. Sure, it was a cheesy sitcom, but he'd had enough of anything death. In fact, he needed something without humans in it. He needed a good old-fashioned cartoon to watch, something that he couldn't identify with humanity. He flipped open his laptop and hunted through his list of video files and found the entire run of Turbo Teen, a Saturday morning cartoon that had originally aired in 1984. The show was about a kid that could transform into a car. It was really goofy, but Henry loved it. He hit play and the first episode began. He didn't even need to pay attention to it. He soon turned his attention back to his tablet. 4. By the late 70s, Mulberry had become quite the thriving metropolis. Public transportation was now active. People were being employed. Mom and pop businesses were popping up all over town. It was a good time to live in town and make your mark. Heinrich Bubenstein had begun to come out of his shell. He was never much of a social butterfly, but he had started to make public appearances. He was now living in his dream city, supposedly. No one really knew if he was insane or if he was telling the truth, or maybe he believed it to be true. Either way, he was just enough insane and just enough genius to pull it off. Mulberry, the city of the future. If you were to arrive in Mulberry and drive around town, it looked like a quaint little storybook city with a few exceptional-looking structures, such as the mentioned before Grand Majestic and the City Hall, which was a marble marvel of architectural brilliance. Bubenstein had brought in some of the best artists in the world to come in and design. He was too busy to design everything himself, but he made sure that he had personally okayed every single decision. One artist named Bartholomew Nekic had designed several fountains throughout Mulberry. He had been cornered one day by a reporter that asked him how he went about getting his designs approved by the great Bubenstein. Nekic had said that Dr. Bubenstein would simply tell him that, Yes, this is exactly how it was. Or he would reply, This isn't you, and it isn't Mulberry. Try again. Nekic had said that it was very frustrating at first, but once he got an okay, he felt the flow and began getting it right repeatedly. He said that he hoped to live in Mulberry for the rest of his life. It was like a true artistic renaissance happening. He saw a link leading to the Nekic Museum of Architecture located in Mulberry at the bottom of the article. In his teen years, Heinrich had no time for girls. He was too busy earning doctorates and inventing new things to improve the world. He always kept his head down and in his pursuits. When Mulberry was shaping up to be the place of his dreams, he took notice of a counter girl at the local clothing store called Merv's that had just opened up in the Synergy Plaza. She was a native Texan girl named Samantha Bowden. She was young and beautiful and fresh out of high school. Mulberry had just recently sprouted a new junior college of design. It had courses such as studies in wind and solar energy, applied invention, and a new one that had everyone scratching their heads. Game theory. Samantha had decided that she wanted to go to school here in Mulberry and worked at Merv's to help pay the rent. When Heinrich had seen her, it was love at first sight. 
Henry saw that there were a few pictures of Heinrich and Samantha. They sat on a park bench in one. Heinrich had a smile on his face. He looked happy. He always looked so solemn in all of his other photos. Henry had glanced too far down the page and saw a wedding photo of Heinrich and Samantha. They stood on the steps of the Grand. Samantha in a beautiful long wedding dress. They were surrounded by what looked like thousands. Everyone turned toward the camera smiling. Henry imagined the photographer shouting, Cheese! And having thousands of voices shout back, Cheese! All beaming their pearly whites. It truly was a renaissance for Mulberry. Harlan Oil and its associates like Barlow Industries had somehow wormed their way into Mulberry eventually, opening up businesses competing with other small companies now. Bubenstein no longer paid much attention to them. He was having the time of his life. The strontium yacht once again took to the skies. Samantha and Heinrich now had rich friends and many celebrities came to Mulberry to see the City of Dreams. Some speculated that Bubenstein Labs could have taken over the world with the tech that was coming out on a regular basis. But Heinrich turned out to be something of an isolationist. He had no desire to take over the world. He only cared about Mulberry, and his businesses started to suffer for it. He didn't care, though. He had his wife and his city, and that was all he needed. Henry had been reading for hours when he finally fell asleep. Turboteen continued to play in a loop on his laptop. The television on the wall played an episode of Hunter, starring Fred Dreyer silently. Henry's mouth opened. He snored quietly, drool forming on the right edge of his mouth. The room was low-lit and everything was perfectly still and peaceful. The laptop had slid off his stomach and drifted to the left on the covers. Henry turned on his right side and quickly fell into a much deeper sleep. The lights in the room changed from a warm white glow to a red instantly. Henry did not stir. He continued to breathe heavily. The lights in the room that were now the shade of red began to pulsate rhythmically. Warning! Threat detected! Crane operations! Warning! Threat detected! It was Proto. Henry did not yet waken. He made a groan. He rolled from his side to flat on his back. The pulsing light made him turn to his left and bury his face. Henry Peter Hubley, Acting Manager, Threat Level 3. Possible rapid escalation to Threat Level 5. Please comply, Henry Peter Hubley, Acting Manager. End of chapter. Dead Ahead. Written and narrated by Jason Wallstrom. Music by Terry Wallstrom. Visit thejstrom.com. Contact me, nimpodcast at gmail.com. The story continues.
Podcasting.